This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. We have been talking about the schizophrenia in our earlier episodes and also in our last episode which was about living with schizophrenia. And in this episode we have with us Peter Bullimore who does not believe in the word and the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Uh, schizophrenia was a term that was coined by Eugene Bleuler in the year 1911 but Peter feels that there's no clear cut diagnosis to schizophrenia there is no blood test there is there's nothing except certain behavioral patterns and that cannot be generalized to confirm that someone is suffering from this terminology called schizophrenia and someone needs to be pumped with 25 medicines in a day Peter was diagnosed with schizophrenia and of course he was pumped with those medications for 10 years with irreversible side effects and Peter takes us through his journey of discarding medicines and learning to live with his voices and befriend them he became a part of the voice hearers network and he's also started his own agency the paranoia network he travels he gives speeches he runs his own training and consultancy agency delivering training on hearing voices childhood trauma and paranoia internationally he also currently teaches at 13 universities in the uk and he also facilitates his own mastrich approach center in sheffield He has set up Maastricht Centre at the Radbourne unit in Derby and Hartingen unit in Chesterfield in collaboration with Derby NHS Trust. He has now launched a Maastricht approach centre in Bradford and a national Maastricht centre in Telford. I wouldn't want to get rid of my voices now. They're a part of me is what Peter says. Hi Peter, welcome to our podcast, The SOS Show. And uh, thank you for being a part of this. You're welcome, Sushita. Peter you you mentioned and i was also hearing a lot of your talks on youtube and also we had this conversation day before yesterday you are a voice hearer and you live with the voices you were diagnosed with chronic schizophrenia and you have had 10 years uh, you were taking the psychiatric medications you're a founder of the paranoia network in uk and you say that there is nothing like schizophrenia because uh, you feel it's an outdated diagnosis there is no test that's based on the behavior and uh, you feel that this actually needs to be reconsidered by science right now so tell me peter just starting with the voices and of course you've mentioned in this little note that you've sent that there were a lot of voices that came together almost like you know 13 14 voices uh, that you you that came on you and uh, you know that's that's where things started sort of turning upside down for you would you like to would you like to be or would you be comfortable describing those voices for our listeners yes. Yeah, of course. Initially, there was only one voice. Uh, mm. I was going through a lot of traumatic experiences by uh, a female babysitter who was abusing me sexually, physically, and emotionally. And the first voice I heard, I was I was only seven years of age. I was in a local park on my own, and the voice appeared, and that voice was friendly. It said, "Keep going, everything will be okay." At that time, it was like an an invisible friend, an imaginary friend. The problem was that voice stayed with me for three years, but when I got to the age of ten. 
the abuser brought more people into the, into the scenario. Uh, my body had started responding to touch because my main abusers were female. And when that happened, that nice voice left me and more voices came that were very, very sinister and very, very negative. And were telling me I was a bad person, I should kill myself, I should hurt other people, slash myself, all these horrible things. And the more intense that the experience got, more voices seemed to join in to the point where I, I felt that I had no control over the voices. I was becoming really encompassed by them. They started to take, take control of my life. Mm. And uh, of course, they, and that was the eight, seven, then as you progressed, as you became older, the voices, the number of voices increased. But so now after so many years, has those voices, the, uh, you know, the people changed or they're the same? No, some have changed. The main voices that I hear, the three external voices I hear through my right ear, they're the main perpetrators, the main abusers. They hurt me for so many years. A lot of the others, the other group of 30, 40 voices, they're more, more like a mumble and a whisper in the background. I don't pay a lot of attention to them. But I have two new voices uh, that came when I was older. One is the voice of my mum, who's dead. And uh, she's a very, very helpful voice. I see that voice as being mediumistic. Every prediction she makes comes true. And if I'm stuck with a problem, I ask that. I ask my mum's voice. And every, every bit of advice she gives me is really, really good advice. And uh, I, I hear another voice, and it's a voice to help me write a children's book. That was there for three years. I couldn't write the children's book without that voice. And the day the book got published, that voice disappeared. And I haven't heard it since. But the, the three external voices, they're the three people that rate me. They're the voices that brought me into psychiatric care. The two internal voices I hear, my mom's and the unknown voice, they wouldn't bring me into psychiatric care. But the big mistake the system makes, the psychiatric system is, the experience of hearing voices was not the problem. I'd heard voices since I was seven. The experience was there, whether the voices were negative or positive. The problem was the fear behind the voices that created paranoia in my life because I knew those people had hurt me and maybe they were out there and could hurt me again. So it's not the experience of hearing voice. So what the voices say related to life events, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So you're saying you heard your mom's voice and that voice yeah. and every prediction that the voice made came out to be right. And uh, there is a creative voice that helped you write a book besides yeah. the other voices, which were destructive voices. So this is something very interesting, Peter, in terms of did you try and do you try and sort of, you know, analyze these voices? Do you try and talk to them and, or provoke them at a deeper, uh, for a deeper understanding of where these voices were coming from? What's your analogy? Yes, I, I understand my voices now. My voices are my emotions. There is a misconception mm -hmm. that, that voices are thoughts. Voices are not thoughts. People do have intrusive thoughts. There is a difference between an intrusive thought and a voice. If I was walking down the road, I can make a conscious decision and say to myself, I am turning left. A voice is more of an instruction. You are turning left or we are turning left. And so based, when I started, the misconception also is we shouldn't listen to voices. That is absolute nonsense. If someone is trying to get your attention, they'll continue to shout because they've got a message they're trying to give you. So we should encourage people to listen to the voices and make sense of their voices based on their life experiences. Now, I'll give you a nice classic example. Uh, my mum, I hear one voice, the main voice. Now, my mum died very unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. I was in psychiatric care. But my voices had told me my mum was going to die, and she died on the day that they predicted. Now, I have a lot of guilt about that. 
in, in real life, I know I couldn't kept keep her alive, but in the context of thought, we think, well, maybe if I'd said something, she wouldn't be alive, but she died of cancer. And my voice has called me a murderer 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Murderer, 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 it's there all the time. Those voices, although it sounds nasty, trying to be helpful, you need to deal with these emotions or the death of your mum, or you will always feel like a murderer. So it's understanding the voices from a metaphorical perspective, and that's what people don't don't try and explore with the person. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that your voices are emotions, but actually... Every, what, yeah. mm. Yes, they're emotions. Emotions haven't been dealt with, unresolved emotions. But actually your voices are, uh, you know, they are almost like premonitions. They are telling you what's going to happen. Did you explore Not that so, bit? Well, my, mom, my mom's voice tells me what's going to happen. The others don't tell me about things that I haven't dealt with that I need to deal with. Mm-hmm. But actually those voices are your voices. It's, it's something that's going on in your mind, some consciousness that you are interacting with that are creating yeah. those voices and they're actually predicting things for you. Have you thought about yeah. that? Yeah, as I said, the others don't predict. They, 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 they tell me about things I need to deal with. They're, they're a part of me that manifests in a way that I hear them through voices. You know, and everybody will hear voices at some time in their life, maybe a one-off comment. Walking down the street, someone's made a comment. A comment. It's not the voice, the experience itself. It's what the voices say. And you have to understand the real meaning behind what they say. You know, because one of the misconceptions is, you know, voices are not real. Voices are real. It's an argument you shouldn't have with people. Because I'm, I'm talking to you now. And yeah. there's activity in the speech centre of my brain. Mm-hmm. If I went to an MRI scan and I was talking while I was on the MRI scan, there would be activity in my speech centre of my brain. If I stopped speaking, but my voices were speaking, there will be activity in the speech center of the brain. So, so voices are real. It's, it's a nonsense argument to tell people that they're not real. But the voices are real. And even right now, as you talk to me, you can hear yes. m- many voices, which only you can hear. Uh, and yes. of course, no one else can hear. But you, And you are saying that the voices are real. Tell me, Peter, you became aware about these voices at sort of what point? I got to the point, uh, I had a million pound business before I finished up in psychiatric care. I lost my business, my home, my family. It was, I was in a really, really bad way. I was on the streets. Uh, I managed to find accommodation and then I was asked by a social worker if I'd like to join a hearing voices group. Mm-hmm. And he, he encouraged me to, I thought there was only me. I didn't know other people heard voices. And I went to this group and there was 10 other people there. Now I'd become what you would call the archetypical schizophrenic. I didn't wash, I didn't shave, I was scruffy. And I walked into this room, there was 10 other people. And I thought, well, they can't be like me. They're all smart and presentable. And he started to talk about their experience of hearing voices. And it is such a liberating experience. And I thought, I'm not alone with this anymore. I can take this mask off I've been wearing for years. And it was such a, I said, it's such an inspiring experience to know you can talk to people in a non-judgmental atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And... Um- if you if you if I could just dig the, uh, dig this a bit more, so you had your million dollar business which you had yeah. built, yeah. Uh, right from the point of, and at that point you were already hearing voices, you were already going through stuff while you were working and building your business. Yes. And of course, you did not pay any attention to them. No, I didn't. I was I was busy with the business. One one of the problems that was that pushed me over the edge. Um, I went through a lot of sexual, physical and emotional abuse by a woman in authority. Now, I always said my body healed, my mind didn't. It was a mind game she played on me that was a problem. Now, when I was married to my first wife and we went through a lot of hardship, 
uh, we, we pulled together. We had to. We had to be strong. We had children. We had a home. When I started the business, it got very, very successful very, very quickly. And I was working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And my wife loved the flash lifestyle, but she wanted me at home as well because we had three young children. Mm. And I'd be out working late at night. She'd ring me up saying, you're a crap father. You're never at home. The kids never see you. So I felt like a woman was tormenting my mind again. And all the content of the voices changed and got more problematic. And there was no way I could escape. I didn't want to be at home because it was difficult. I was struggling because I was at work and things were getting out of control. So I felt trapped in a world. I was like I was like a hamster on a wheel. And it was getting faster and faster and faster. And basically, it just, it just overwhelmed me. And I lost total control of it. And I just stopped seeing the world through, reality, through the real eyes of the real person, really. Mm-hmm. So do you think that that was your trigger point that triggered something? And uh, at what point did you identify or go for a diagnosis to get identified about the voices? Uh, there'd been a problem at work uh, on a job and uh, I hit somebody over the head with a telephone. And I, and I went home and I curled up in a chair and I was there for about three weeks. Hardly I, washed. I didn't wash, I didn't shave, hardly anything. And the doctor came and he said, I think you should go in hospital. Now, I was ignorant to mental health. I thought he was going to put me on a general ward. And my dad drove me up to this old asylum. And uh, and I said, why have you brought me here? He said, this is where you've got to go. And I was taken into the hospital and I saw a consultant psychiatrist and he said, you are a chronic schizophrenic. You will never, ever work again. Go away and enjoy your life. And those words re- resonated with me for so many years. I thought, well, I can't try and do anything because I've been told by the experts that I can't work. But it turned out they weren't the experts because I got my life back and started to work again. Oh my God, but all this while you never got your voice, you never thought where the voices were coming. You when you never identified those voices. You were just living with it. And you I was were just living with it. And you were I, comfortable I wasn't, I, I wasn't comfortable with it at that time. No, I, I was taking 25 drugs a day and the voices no, no, were before, getting worse. Before, before, before it got identified. Before it got oh, identified. yes, yes. I was, I was living with them. Yeah, they were a part of me. And then they got they got overwhelming. And then I was told that I couldn't talk about them and they were symptoms of an illness and they were a bad thing. So when I stopped seeing them as being a part of me, the voices started to alienate me even more. And they mm-hmm. started to turn against me. If I'm not going to in- interact with us, then we're going to cause you more problems. Mm-hmm. So then after your breakdown, you were sent to a, you know, a psychiatric institute and there you were declared a chronic schizophrenic and they put you on medication, which you, which you mentioned 25 drugs a day. So Peter, what happened when you were taking 25 drugs a day? Did the voices go away? No, they actually got worse. They got more mm-hmm. intrusive, they're more difficult to deal with. More difficult the more to deal medication with. I took. Yeah, the more medication I took, the more intrusive the voice has got. And one of the other things about it as well is I was just like a zombie. I didn't have the confidence uh, to try and challenge them. They were just getting worse and worse and worse. And they just kept saying, we'll give you more drugs, we'll take them away. Well, they didn't. It just made the situation worse. Did the voices change their tone of talking? No, they, 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 they started to say more nasty things. They got louder, more intrusive. Of course, these voices were your emotions, who, which were, and they were reacting to your medication. Yes, yes. I also got. Uh, I think there are, there are people called slow metabolizers, and uh, the liver has to process enzymes in your body and you, from any kind of drug. And if you don't, if you, I think I was a slow metabolizer, and uh, if it doesn't process the enzymes quick enough in your liver, these enzymes of the drug stay in your liver and they cause psychosis. I think I was a slow metabolizer. The more I took, the more psychotic I was becoming. The more you took, the more psychotic you were becoming. So 
Yeah. What happened to your business? What happened to your family at that point? Who was who was standing by you? Uh, I lost my business. Uh, I had to leave it. Um, my wife threw me out of the family home. I had to live on the streets. Uh, I was very difficult. She wouldn't let me see my children. So I was lucky. I, I had parents that were supporting me. They stood by me at that time. Mm -hmm. So for 10 years, you were being supported by your family and... And, and then you were going through this zombie phase, taking 25 drugs a day. So at what point, Peter, did you realize, because you have, because, because you have built a business which was running in millions, at what point did you realize that what you were going through, you had to actually put a check on it? It got to a situation where I was living on the streets and um, it was a really wet night and I was sleeping under these stairs of this old building. And two men came in, and I think they'd been out drinking. And they mm -hmm. came in, and they, urin they urinated all over me. And I just thought, I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to do something. Uh, one of the biggest problems I had was I was still frightened of my abusers. I was a grown man, and they still frightened me. I felt like a child if I saw them. And I met a guy called Terry McLaughlin. He was a psychologist, very radical, who worked for the Hearing Voices Network. Mm. And I heard him talk about hearing voices. And I said to him, um, I like what you say about voices, mate, but you're talking about voices with identities. Mine have no identity. They have no agenda. They're demonic. Now, this guy, all he knew about me, I was a voice That's all he knew. And he just looked me straight in the face and he said, Peter, address the demons of your past. Now, subconsciously, I know my demons of my past was my abusers. But because I was frightened to challenge them, because I still felt like a child. But I saw the main abuser coming down the road one Saturday afternoon and uh, my first instinct was to run. But I didn't. I kept walking towards and I thought my heart was going to jump out of my body. And uh, I kept eye contact all the way. And as I got close to her, she wouldn't look me in the face. She looked to the floor and walked past. And I suddenly thought, the only power this woman has got is the power that I let her have. Stop seeing it through a child's eyes. And then I thought, sometimes, somehow I've got to use this power that I've reclaimed. And I, I, I'd got somewhere to live at this point. And uh, I started looking at my life. And uh, the problem is when you've been through abuse, it's layered. It's not one dimensional. You've got fear. You've got guilt. You've got shame. You've got pleasure. You've got a lot of different things in there. And for me, the guilt was the big one. But the problem was my abuse stopped when I was 13. I didn't want it, but my body told me it was nice. I was getting something from it. So I thought somehow I've got to let this guilt go. So I thought I'm going to go to court. I couldn't just walk into a court of law. So I'm going to, I thought I'm going to build a courtroom in my mind. I'm going to weigh up the evidence for and against. But my big fear was, what if I found myself guilty because my body told me it was nice? But I thought, well, it doesn't matter. I've lost, it. I've lost everything. I can't get any lower than what I've been. And I weighed up the evidence for and against, and I found myself not guilty and innocent of all charges. Because I was a child, I didn't ask to be abused. And from there, when I could let that guilt go, I started listening more to the voices because I no longer feared them. And they were messengers. Mess they were giving me messages about my life that I'd still not addressed. But I always felt a little bit more privileged than a lot of people in psychiatric care because I got three children. I wanted them back in my life. But I, gave, I had the courage then to fight to get them back. And I did. I got to the point where I managed to reclaim my life and my children came to live with me, which was really nice. Mm -hmm. well, that's but, lovely. Mm. But, it, it, once, but I had to work with my guilt uh, and the fear because there were big, big emotions that I had no control of. And once I could do that, 
then I could change the relationship with my voices. Instead of being told, not li don't listen to them, ignore them, I started to listen to them and I worked out what the real message was. You know, because there's a difference between hearing voices and listening to voices. If someone speaks to you and, and you don't listen to them, they will feel disrespected. If someone speaks to you and you listen, they will feel respected. And that's how we start to change the relationship by understanding the real meaning of what the voices are saying. So you got to the point of listening to the voices and not ignoring them. But Peter, just going a bit, uh, you know, uh, a bit back to the storyline that you just said, you were living in streets and at that point you were on medication and you were still hearing the voices and you had the option to go to a psychiatric ward, but you did not take that option. I had many options to go to a psychiatrist. I went to them many times, but they didn't do anything for me. But with respect, sometimes I was in a really bad way. I was glad to be there and I felt safe. But then my, my voices were not explored. The only questions I was asked were, are your voices telling you to harm yourself or someone else? Nobody asked me any more questions about the voices. So at the end, I thought there is no point in going back to the psychiatric ward anymore. So I decided to stay away and, and help myself get off the drugs. Mm -hmm. So at what point, Peter, You, you, you at what point... Did you decide that you need to get off medications? These medic medicines were not, you know, they're doing more harm to you than they're actually uh, doing good to you. I think it was a point when I realized uh, how low I'd got in my life. And if I, if I got to see my children, they were embarrassed to be seen with me because how I looked and how I walked. I didn't want to bring embarrassment onto my children. So I thought I've got to reclaim my life and I can't do it unless I get off these drugs because there was so much lethargy. Acathesia, and I was just walking like a robot and I thought this is not helping me in any shape or form the voices are getting worse so I may be I may as well be off the drugs the voices are there anyway and I have a quality of life where at least I can function in society and look like a normal human being where did you pull out the strength from because you were almost in the zombie state what was it that you know did you go for a spiritual thing did you you know cling go to a church how did you do it like where did you get the strength yeah. To I think for me, it was like when I, when I hit rock bottom and those guys urinated all over me, and I thought, you know, Peter, you used to be someone. Why are you living your life like this? You used to stand up to people. Now you're just letting people walk all over you. And I thought, you know, and as I say, my, my children were a great focus. I wanted to be dad again. I didn't want them to, I don't think they're ever embarrassed or ashamed of me, but I wanted to be the person that they knew before all this madness took over my life. So it, it wasn't it wasn't an easy road, uh, but one of the main turning points for me was uh, during this journey, I got to the point where I no longer wanted to live. I'd really had enough and I thought, I'm going to kill myself. And I was walking up the road from where I live and there's a big field at the top. And it's one of the most surreal moments I've ever had in my life. And the main voice was telling me to do things and I was getting into trouble and I was getting arrested. But I was lucky as a child, I was brought up and I was taught right from wrong. And the main voice told me to do something. Now, I knew if I did it, I would never walk the streets again. I'd be locked up in a forensic unit for the rest of my life. And I just said, I'm not going to do it. So she says, well, I'm going to stab you then. Well, that was win-win for me because I wanted to die anyway. And I just said, well, stab me then. And I was waiting for the knife to go in me. And I could see people on the field at the top and the world stopped. They turned into statues. Now, it was probably only for seconds, but it seemed like hours. And I'm waiting for this knife to stab me. And then it didn't happen. And I suddenly realized the only power these voices have got is the power that I'm letting them have. She can scream. She can shout. She can threaten me. She's not a physical entity that can actually hurt me. 
So the more I stand up to them, the more power I can take back from them. So it was just little turning points where I started to stand up to the voice and gain more control over them. It was it was a long journey, but the outcome was I wanted my life back. I'd had my life ripped away from me by a system that wasn't helping me. So I had to take control. For me, and with respect, I was lucky. I found an occupational therapist and she was absolutely mind-blowing. She was absolutely brilliant. She never, ever trekked my diagnosis. She worked with Pete Bullimore. She didn't work with Peter the Schizophrenic. Mm. She really pushed up. She really pushed the boundaries to get me out of psychiatric services. Mm-hmm. Peter, tell me, since now, since the time, how many years are you off medication now? I came off them in 1995. Oh my God! Almost 20, 25 years. You're off medication, and how do you feel now? Great. I feel great. I can function. I work uh, 80 hours a week. I travel the world delivering teaching on hearing voices, paranoia, childhood trauma. And I, f- I feel a lot better. I don't I don't I don't need the drugs to function. The voices are there, but I understand why they're there now. And sometimes they get difficult, but I have to take a step back, take some time out, look at what is it that they, why they've become difficult, what, what are they trying to tell me in my life. And I yeah. can make those adju- make those adjustments and the voices back off again. Yeah, because I've seen I've seen your videos on YouTube and you're a fantastic orator when you talk. But but tell me, Peter, do you think that so with all this experience, do you think that the psychiatrist, the patient and the research that's happening in the field, all three of them are not on the same page? They're not. There's 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 a big difference. You know, one of the problems is one of the big questions we should ask something is what's happened to you? Not, what, not what's wrong with you. Nobody right. gets up one day and decides to be mad. Something brings you into psychiatric care. And if we don't ask that question, the average time it takes someone to disclose is 16 years. Now, you could have gone through a lot of medication hardship in that time before we get to the root cause of the problem. One of the problems as well is I do teach psychiatrists in England and they're obsessed with behaviour. Now, this is not just in psychiatry, this is in society. Behaviour is secondary. You cannot diagnose anyone on behaviour. You've got to look at why someone behaves in a certain way. It's a societal problem. And I always give them an example. And I say, you behave, you're mad. I'll give, I say, if you go home this evening, I'm assuming you're in a relationship. You walk through the front door, whoever you'll live with, they come out the front room, they punch you in the nose, they bloody your nose, and they run upstairs and slam the bedroom door. Please tell me what you would do. Well, I'll go upstairs. And then what? Ask them why they've hit me. I say, thank you very much. That's all I wanted to know. You cannot judge anybody on behaviour. They can be driven by voice, they can be driven by thoughts, they can be driven by paranoia. We need to know what the fear behind those experiences are to understand the behaviour. Because fear is the most powerful emotion that we have. Mm. Absolutely. That's a brilliant point, Peter, in terms of you cannot judge somebody on behaviour. And of course, as you mentioned, that schizophrenia is actually... Uh, you know, diagnosed on the basis of behavior. There's no blood test. There's nothing. It's absolutely what the person is feeling. And everybody is given the same diagnosis, which is crazy. It's how they're feeling and they're acting. And that, that's that's one of why you're acting in this way, why you're looking so frightened. You know, we have to remember the history of schizophrenia is very, very interesting. Like I may have mentioned it the other day, Eugene Bloyler, that coined yeah. the term. His, fa- yeah. his father, Manfred, was, was alarmed. So Eugene said, well, I hope this isn't going to be around in the future. But he all, all he did was steal the word. It's actually a Greek word. Greek word used to be schizophrenia. Schizo doesn't mean, doesn't mean split. It means chaotic and shattered. Because the Greeks were interested in the mind, but they thought the brain was in the stomach around the diaphragms. That's why they call it schizophrenia. All Bloyler did was drop the ams off because he realised the brain was in the head. 
Right, right. And, and, and you also feel it's an outdated concept that we need to relook at schizophrenia. It's the, the, the entire thing. Yeah, I think it, it's not just about changing a word. It's about changing the whole process around someone. Mm-hmm. You know, Japan abolished schizophrenia years ago. It's called integration disorder. But have they changed the practice on how they deal with integration disorder? Oh, that's schizophrenia. We'll give them drugs. It's got to be. It's got to be a whole societal perspective, and it's not just schizophrenia. I don't really need understand why we need a diagnosis for anything. You know, if you if you're depressed, can't we say we're low in mood? If you if you're anxious, anxiety says what it is. If you're a bit manic, can't we say we're related? There's many, many ways of, of, of describing someone's behaviour by understanding the emotions behind the behaviour. Right. I mean, again, it's, it's not... One thing that you, that's really important to remember is over a, the whole diagnostic procedure and the whole of psychiatry, you are never, ever going to change the whole perception of psychiatry. It's not going to happen. What you've got to change is the perception of society. They've got to start viewing it in different ways. So they treat people in different ways when they're not in psychiatric care. They treat it as fellow human beings with feelings and emotions. So it's society perception we need to change rather than it's a psychiatrist perception. So if you escort a child to the hospital and say, oh, he's got your son or daughter's got schizophrenia. No, 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 they haven't got schizophrenia. They've got problems. Now, what are you going to do to help them with those problems? And that's where the changes start. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel, Peter, that we need to... Do you see a supernatural angle in schizophrenia? Yes, I do. I do. I accept all explanations because, as I say, uh, I see my mom's voice as being mediumistic and there's people that go to spiritual church, churches and, and they, they hear voices. That's why... But they don't come into psychiatric care because you have a different context on it. It makes They make sense of it from their perspective. It's when people don't understand it, it overwhelms them. That they're going to get frightened of the experiences that they come into psychiatric care. Yeah, I think I think so. Definitely, definitely. Mm. And if you think about it, it's been some very famous people that hear voices. Yes. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, for a start. Yes. But when you think about it, it was the Last Supper. It's the first hearing voices group ever in the world. Lovely. Yes. Yes, that's a great point. That's a great point, Peter. Uh, that's a great point. How can we work on the research of schizophrenia? What can we do, like, uh, from your perspective? Where do you see there's a loophole? And I see a loophole. I think they've got to take the power away from the drugs companies. That's the important mm. thing. And I think that, that will change because I, I think, you know, uh, there's not going to be a third generation of neuroleptics. The work of people like Robert Whittaker and Peter Gostein in, uh, Peter Goshter, sorry, in, in Denmark, they've proved that the drugs can't work. But the problem is, it's the way we get back into society. It's the profits from the drugs company that keep the economy going. The only profits that raise more money is the arms industry. That's one of the problems. I, I had a, a, a debate with, uh, where it was a policy affairs minister uh, from Labour Party a few years ago and the head pharmacist in, uh, in England. And basically our argument was, if you don't administer drugs to the level of what you are, but you give people talking treatments, initially talking treatments are more expensive than drugs. I get that. But if you can under, underpin the underlying problem and work through it, the person leaves psychiatric care, can go back into employment and start to pay taxes. And then you reduce the deficit. But they don't they don't want to hear it because it's unfortunately there's too many backhanders in politics from people in drugs companies. Mm, so that's a network, yeah. It is, but I, th- I think there are ways around it because um, I'm not anti-psychiatry. And I, I'm, I really, I'm not anti- I've got some very good friends that are psychiatrists. And I think one of the misconceptions as well in the user movement is 
You've got to change from the outside. You can't. You're never going to break down these barriers. You've got to change from the inside and the outside. Now, all the training we do, especially around the Maastricht interview, we worked with qualified clinicians, nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, occupational therapists, and we're learning them a new way to work with paranoia and hearing voices. And they're taking that on board to work with their clients. Now, when people start to recover by not using medication, now we're not saying don't, you can't have your medication. We're dealing with the issue. So when they come off medication, the problem doesn't become problematic again. People will start to say, what have you done with that guy that's been in services for 20 years? We talked about his experience. We helped them make sense of it. But you need people on the inside to put those approaches in and then it can start to change. So it's got to change from the inside and the outside. I think that's, that's the bigger picture. Mm. And there are a lot of people wanting to make those changes. Now, my daughter, she's a, a mental health nurse specialist. She Lovely. implements a lot of these changes within her service. Tell me, with your experience, do you feel that schizophrenia can happen to anyone anytime with a certain amount of trigger in their life? Um, well, they can get diagnosed with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia can't happen because it doesn't exist. But they can have a, enough experiences in their life that they can lose control of things in their lives and get diagnosed, yeah, because you don't have to hear voices to get a diagnosis of schizophrenia. It comes in many, many different forms. And it can happen at... Because for you, it happened pretty much late. A uh, lot of research work says it starts in the teens. But you got it does, that. yeah. Hmm. So but I've, saying, I've, met, I've met people in the 60s and 70s that started to get that diagnosis. So there is no hard and fast rule, the research-wise? No, the average is age between 16 and 24, roughly. But mm -hmm. that's, 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 that's the average. But, you, you know, you're going through a lot of hormonal changes as then, aren't you? And you may be a bit university away from home. There's a lot of other stresses in people's lives that can trigger these events. Mm -hmm. So now, Peter, you are hearing your voices, but you have become friendly with them. You're listening to your voices and you're able to handle your life just fine. You travel the world, you work 18 hours a day. Are you on any alternative therapy? No, no, no. Uh, as I say, I, I, average working week is 70 to 80 hours. Uh, I don't have any therapy, but I have to be say I have I've been a very lucky person. Um, because people like Professor Marius Rom, the founder of the movement, is a personal friend of mine. So I've been able to talk to him and his wife, Sandra, about my experiences. Terry McLaughlin, the person who I talked about, and Alec Jenner, he was an emeritus professor of psychiatry. He knew R.D. Lang, Thomas Satz, people like that. And Bob Johnson, uh, John Reed, Richard Bentall, all these people you wouldn't get in one hospital or one university. I've been very lucky that I've met them on a personal level. And I've been able to talk about my experiences to them and they've given advice I've taken on board. So I've been I've been lucky I've been lucky in that respect. Mm -hmm. I've never had it, I've never had any I've never had any formal talking therapies, but Sally, uh, the occupational therapist that I talk about, because I had a fear of women in authority, she helped me break down those fears, which was really helpful. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Voices Network, Peter, now the Voices Network is in thirty eight countries, including India. If I'm not wrong, who can join the network? Anyone can join. Yeah, so it's for it's, it's not just for people that hear voices. It's for it's for family members and interested parties as well, yeah. and uh, and professionals that want to get help. But there's a lot of professionals involved to help and support the movement around the world. Yeah, it's the fastest growing user movement in the world. Mm -hmm. And now, Peter, you know, you said your quality of life has jumped up once you have given up on medications, and now you're just focusing on your walk. 
uh, any advice for our listeners out there who are wanting to know more about schizophrenia or are dealing with it in some way, you know, around in, in, in their environment? What yeah, would you I like think, to I tell think them? Uh, find someone that you can talk to openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to them about the content of the voices. The voices can only have the power that you let them have. Then see if you can explore it from a metaphorical perspective to things that may have happened in your life. Um, I'll give you an example. I said, both my parents are dead. One died in April, one died in May. And I always go to the cemetery to pay my respects around that time. Now, my voice calls me a murderer, as I explained. Now, the main voice might start to call me an effing murderer and become very intense. And if I try and fight, I lose. So I have to stand back and think, why is this voice getting more angry with me? Now, it might be near the end of April and I've forgotten to go to the cemetery. So basically, the voice is saying, you will feel like an effing murderer unless you go. So I go and I take some flowers and I pay my respects. And I and then I say to the voice, thank you for reminding me it's this time of year. And then I can make a note in my diary for the following year so I don't forget to go. And it's understanding the real context of that. So, But you need to find someone who will listen and hear. That's the important thing. I say, this voice is saying this. So what can I, how do you deal with that voice? I don't know how to deal with it. Well, can we think about some ideas together so I can support you to do it? So you start to get some control over the voices so you can listen to them on your terms and then try and explore the real meaning behind the content with someone that you trust and feel happy to talk to about it. But don't be afraid to talk about them. But what I don't want people to take away from this is to walk away and say, right, I do not have to take my medication. That's not the point I'm trying to make at all. All I'm trying to say is if people want to stay on drugs and it helps them, that is fine. But they will not cure. You cannot have a biological cure if someone's got no biological cause. Because if they stop the drugs, the problem will still be there. And if they can't deal with it, they finish up back in psychiatric care. We told you you needed medication, we'll put them on more. Find a supported person or a hearing voices group or any support network that you can that understands your perspective. Try and deal with, or, or intense therapy if you need it. Deal with the underpinning problem. Then come off the drugs slowly. But when those pro- when you've come off the drugs, the problem's been dealt with. It. If, it re- if it resurfaces, you've got an understanding of it, you know how to deal with it. Right, right, great. Great advice, Peter. Thank you so much. I so appreciate your time, Peter. And uh, I'm going to be staying in touch with you and you know, we'll talk more on this. Okay, thank you. And thank you, thank you for giving me a chance to speak to you. I really appreciate it. So what do you guys think about this inspiring and courageous journey of Peter Bullimore? If you have a story related to voices or chronic schizophrenia, we are here to listen. You can connect with us on our website, ablogmedia slash the SOS show. You can also find me on my Twitter and Instagram handles with the name Metaphysical Lab and ablogmedia. Till then, folks, take good care of yourself. I'm your host, Suchita, and I look forward to hearing more from you.